Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, November 28th. There is an agreement in place to extend the four-day ceasefire between Israel and terrorist group Hamas. Could the ceasefire turn into a more lasting peace, or can we anticipate a return to the fighting? We get the latest on the conflict from Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Next, it's time to get into the holiday spirit. It's Giving Tuesday, a chance for you to help organizations or charities that need attention and or a financial boost. We take the opportunity to hear the very personal story of a Calgary woman in need of a kidney donation and how you might be able to give the gift of life. And finally, literacy is a fundamental building block for a successful life and education is a basic human right. We learn all about the Educational Partnership Foundation and the much-needed work they do in the city on this Giving Tuesday. It looks like the four-day ceasefire between Israel and terrorist group Hamas has been extended. We can expect, hopefully, more hostages held by Hamas to be released. Joining us to discuss the situation in the Gaza Strip is Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Good morning once again, Professor. Thanks for being back with us. Good morning, folks. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, The original ceasefire agreement should have expired overnight. Looks like it's been extended. What do we know this morning? So basically the deal is is that if Hamas gives up another 10 prisoners to, to Israel, 10 hostages to, to Israel, that'll buy them another day of peace. So the, the thing we're sort of seeing here is that we, we can basically be assured that Israel is preparing not just to go back into conflict the minute the ceasefire ends, but to go even more aggressive. So this might just be a very strategic move on Hamas's part say we need a little bit more time to really start defending the southern part of Gaza. The, the, the north is, and when we talk about not, not Gaza, not just the city, but the entire strip, the, the northern part is pretty much in Israel's control right now. The south is where it is going to get gnarly. So basically the, the sort of uh, violence and belligerence that we've seen so far will only intensify once the ceasefire ends. So right now it's, it's a positioning chip for Hamas to try to delay that as much as they can before things really get going. Okay, so it, it sounds to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Robert, that you uh, seem to believe this is more tactical and we, we might not, this could be the end of any ceasefire. We would not see an extension to this current ceasefire? That's right. I, I believe what we're going we're gonna to see here is Israel's, because of Israel's pursuit of Hamas, saying like, no, we're not going to forgive this. We're not going to forgive what happened uh, in the middle of October with the with the you know the, the terrorist attacks that took place. They're going for total annihilation of Hamas as a governing body of Gaza. So when this occurred, one of the predictions that was made was say, well, what will happen if they achieve that goal? Will someone else come in and and take over that power vacuum? Will other uh, actors in the area like Hezbollah get involved, or will Israel find itself in a position? where there is no exit strategy. And that seems to be what is, is occurring more and more every day, is that Israeli defense forces are moving towards this position of, of basically being a, a, an occupier of, of Gaza going forward. And until Hamas itself, as an organization, is is removed from power, uh, Israel's not going to stop. Do we know, Professor, how many hostages Hamas is still holding at this point? So the the guess right now is at least 100, and it could be more than that. And, you know, this is just the the, the group that we know uh, that were involved in the attacks in mid-October. There could be others, and there could be other groups inside uh, Gaza that are also holding hostages as well that are, you know, 
arm's length from Hamas. But in the end, you, you see that the, the currency at play here is prisoner exchange. And this is where the, the diplomacy with Qatar has come involved with this, where they are uh, the brokers and basically saying, we're going to give 50 Palestinians back over from Israel in exchange for, you know, how many back the other way. But, yeah, it's, it's still a foggy number. I mean, and that also goes in terms of the, the death toll from this conflict as well. We're, we're, our closest guess right now is 14,000 or more. Wow. That's just a guess. Wow, incredible. Speaking with Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies, Dalhousie University. And, Robert, what do we know about aid, whether it's food supplies, water, or medicine, getting into the main area of conflict at this point? Yeah, so there has been some aid come across. Uh, Israel's promised 200 trucks of aid coming into to Gaza via Egypt during this time. A day or so ago, they just they were under that. They, there were some delays on the second day of the ceasefire, only 137 vehicles that got through at that point. The other thing is the nature of the aid that's coming in. Like Gaza is, is, has to be one of the most heavily sanctioned areas on the planet, right down to water and fuel. And the fact that Israel can control water and fuel into Gaza always brings it very close to a humanitarian crisis. The other concern that Israel has about any sort of aid being let in uh, is the, the ability to, for any dual-use technology. So they really, shall we say, filter down the type of aid that can be put into Gaza because Israel Defense Forces are very concerned about any sort of piping, generators, tools, medical equipment that can be repurposed as a weapon. And that that's often why the delays are so uh, extreme and often where the aid coming in is, is usually piecemeal at best. Robert, we talk or hear a lot about, you know, the, the Palestinians in Gaza have sort of gone to the south of the region. Yeah. Was Hamas basically just entrenched in the north or really are they everywhere? Hidden underneath well, hospitals, etc.? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the Hamas, uh, when, when you see them on camera, they, they have a certain outfit to them, but that outfit comes off quickly, and the, the the tactics of finding and locating these individuals is tricky. Uh, there's also quite a bit to be said that the real financiers of of Hamas, the the ones who are funding the conflict on this side, aren't even in Gaza. They're connected to millionaires in bank accounts in Turkey at this point, as the U.S. Treasury Department declared last week. So you know, it is an, a global network in in some ways. There are there are connections abroad. But within Gaza itself, the, the, the thing that is still going to have to be determined was the role of the El Jaffa Hospital. I mean, how was that really being a military base? Because if it is, that's a war crime on, on Hamas's side. Uh, if it was a military base and Israel attacked that hospital, that would be a war crime on that side. So that's where we're still trying to piece it together. And these, these tunnel networks uh, that we're seeing, yes, they are certainly elaborate and they certainly allowed Hamas to maintain control of the city and surrounding regions but uh, for the for the part that going forward we're probably going to see more conflict at street level into the residences and then also a little bit of the tunnel fighting as well it's it's it could really be a, a grim uh, next phase of this conflict and when you say next phase, uh, Robert, how, how do you see a potential for this to come to a conclusion? And when I say conclusion, I don't necessarily mean tied up in a nice fancy bow and everybody's shaking hands. Where, where could we potentially see this in six months? Well, the, the big thing, I think, is that we're, we're going to have to insist that there is some respect for international order. Uh, both sides now are at, at stake of being persecuted for war crimes. And there's uh, a disrespect, there's a derelict behavior 
around uh, any respect for international order around this, this way. We, we see that the way that, that Hamas attacked Israel is a crime. We see that the way that Israel is trying to strategically go at Hamas, but through a, a, a barrage of, of weaponry and missiles that have killed thousands, that's also criminal. So we, we see that both sides are, are pursuing these, these brutal actions. And there's no regard for international order in that way. And only until both parties can be held to account to say, look, this is what the international order dictates. These are what the rules of war are. Who did what? Let's figure this out. That would be the only way to really get some peace brokering going forward. Uh, the, the prisoner exchange, the hostage diplomacy, uh, that's really only a strategic part of continuing this conflict for the time being. Robert, as always, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Have a great morning. You too. Thanks so much. Robert Hewish is the Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. A new national campaign is hoping to raise awareness for those looking for kidney donations and potential donors. Judith Morrison understands the need. She has kidney disease. She's waiting for a donor match for a kidney transplant. And she joins us now on this Giving Tuesday. Good morning, Judith. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. It is Giving Tuesday. Boy, a kidney would be the ultimate gift, wouldn't it? I mean, giving the gift of life is truly what somebody would be doing by joining a kidney bank, wouldn't they? Well, that's correct. It would be saving someone's life. Um, no other words for it, really. Yeah. Um, as well as like improving their day-to-day well-being dramatically and keeping them off dialysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Judith, you you know, and you speak from experience. So I want to take it back, Judith, to the place you were. Uh, Can you bring us back to that moment that you learned that you do have kidney disease? What went through your mind at that point? Um, I found out in my late 20s. I inherited it. It's an inherited um, condition called polycystic kidney disease. Uh, What went through my mind it was devastating, to be honest, because I'd seen what my father had gone through, and he had two failed transplants, plus was on dialysis for 12 years. So I just want to add that now with um, kidney donation, the success rate is incredible with the, the new anti-rejection drugs. So it's a new, a new time for kidney transplants, and the outcome's much more positive. But yeah, back in, I found out in my late 20s, and it was devastating. Judith, Um, no, sorry, continue. My sister also has the disease. So if if a parent has it, you have a 50% chance of inheriting it. And then from there, um, another 50% chance of uh, it leading to complete kidney failure. So it affects polycystic kidney disease, uh, affects different people in different ways and different levels of severity. But in my case, it's quite severe. Judith, can you kind of give us, you say different levels, absolutely, but can you kind of give us a a bit of an example of of what it's like to suffer from kidney disease? I would think that most people maybe were not really truly aware of, of what a day with kidney disease might be like for someone. It's so you're taught you're not getting rid of your toxins properly. So you have a buildup, and consequently, you never really feel well. 
you almost, I'd say to uh, uh, um, the average person, picture pre-flu, you know, those few days before getting a flu when you, you just, you don't feel right. And with kidney failure, it's also, um, it leads to extreme fatigue debilitating fatigue, swelling in the ankles, high blood pressure. Uh, you have to pace yourself during the day. Like probably most chronic diseases, like your energy levels low. So you have to really like pick and choose what you, you know, what's a must on an everyday basis, as well as just not feeling well, like going through life, not feeling very well. When it comes to kidney uh, donation, and I'm sure it's similar to a lot of organ donations, uh, Judith, can you walk us through the process as far as being on that list? I can only imagine waiting for something, and I don't want to trivialize it, but waiting for a package at home is is one thing, but waiting for something that could absolutely change your life. Uh, Do you get updates on a regular basis? How how does something like this work? So to get on the deceased list, you... You're, you're put on day one of dialysis. Now, I'm looking for a live kidney, so the beauty of that is you can um, potentially uh, go on before dialysis, a preemptive kidney transplant. But yeah, it's I had a donor who backed out, and that, that was also devastating. Uh, how it is to wait, it's very hard you know you just it's a it's endurance and patience tolerance you know working hard to try to find one through social media and media now but yeah it's very hard well, Judy, we're happy to try and amplify your story on this Giving Tuesday. I can't think of anything, you know, more crucial to give than the gift of life. So we'll send people to kidney.ca. You can find out more information there. GivingTuesday.ca as well. Uh, Judith, you know, what's your message to people who might be considering maybe joining, you know, the living donor list and, and, and perhaps giving the gift of life? What would you say to somebody who's sort of, ah, do I do it or not? Um, just thank you and please do your research and check it out. Uh, you could pretend, it, it might not be as uh, taxing as you think as well. The people who donate, they're as healthy before as after. But you're, usually you're in the hospital for two days and when you get out, you're, you're, you're well. So just please do the research and see if it's something that you may want to consider. Mm-hmm. And you could dramatically change a life. And from what I'm reading about people who have donated, is that it's, an ex- you're, you're, it's very, very fulfilling mm. as, a, no as doubt. an experience. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And, you know, and if nothing else, Judith, we're, we're getting the conversations happening on this Giving Tuesday about donation, and that's uh, invaluable. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for um, showcasing this. Thank you. No problem. That is hey. it. Thank you. Judith Morrison has kidney disease and waiting for a kidney donation. You can help out by going to givingtuesday.ca or to help Judith specifically, kidney.ca. See if you can make that difference.
Did you know that one in four Canadian households don't have a book to call their own? One organization needs your help to change that. And on this Giving Tuesday, we're joined in studio by Barb Simic, who's the president and CEO of the Educational Partnership Foundation. Good morning, Barb. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Thanks, Sandy. Appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about the Educational Partnership Foundation. What do you do? We are a charity that serves 744,000 kids across Alberta, and we've been a registered charity and an Alberta nonprofit for 33 years. Wow. And all of the programs that we offer to uh, kids in school is free. So we want to remove barriers for education for children. Before we get to how the average Calgarian and people listening right now to QR Calgary can help out, let's talk about something that Sue referenced in the introduction to you, Barb, which is the deal and the big deal behind owning a physical copy of a book. Yeah. Why is that a big deal? It's a really big deal because literacy is not just a foundational building block in education. It's actually a basic human right, and we in Canada don't even think about it that way. But it is also so important to open the doors to accessibility for everyone. But when a family has to choose between rent or food and a book, and people go, well, go to the library. Well, people that are worrying about rent and books don't usually have the money to get to libraries Mm -hmm. either. So it's so important that we get books into hands of kids who need it most. Now, you talked about, you know, 744,000 kids, and you do this for free. So how, how does that work? How do you sustain? Well, uh, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm a very, very passionate uh, person around uh, making sure that all of us, all of us have the right to education. And so I go out and I tell the stories and share the statistics because the story is one thing. But when you look at the statistics and you share this with people, they're shocked. So you talked about one in four don't own a book. Did you know that 25% of kids in grade three do not read at their level? And of those children, one in six of those children will struggle through school and not graduate. And that's four times higher than kids who read proficiently. That is a statistic that we need to annihilate. That has to go away. We have to make a difference and put books into the hands of kids and getting them reading makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Campaign says it all and I love it you know you say what's going to name give the gift of literacy in, in this campaign that you know is uh, something that's very important to the organization tell us how that works. Well you know this Christmas we wanted to spread the power and the magic of reading you know we look and we say if you can donate money we can provide those books two children who need the most, it doesn't become just a gift at Christmas. It's actually a gift of lifelong learning. So we know that it changes lives. It's nice to see someone smile and get a toy. But if you give them that book, it changes their life forever. And so we said, let's reach out to prominent Albertans and get them to share their story of how literacy has changed their life. And they've shared with us what book has helped them find their career and their success. And we've asked other questions of saying, what book do you think every child should own? So we have these great prominent Albertans. In fact, Sue, we have you. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be our first story today that goes out on what? social media. Oh, really? Oh, fun. Yeah. So make sure that your listeners get to go onto our social media channels and they also can tell their story and they can reach us at on the hashtag gift of literacy, T-E-P-F. But they also can find out more information on our website, tpf.ca. But yeah, so it's it's listening to people's stories of how reading has changed their lives. Well, I want to you know I want to bring Sue into the interview here.
And apparently you had a title. Uh, tell us about your title and so why it's important. I'm not going to spoil the actual book because I think it's well. a really fun Good. book oh. to sh- for people to have a look at. But my book is, is one of the books that my kids loved. And we read it over and over and over and over again. You know, when you can change your voice and you can change, you know, kind of the accent you might read a story in, it just really brings kids more into it and we as a family spent a lot of time reading it's a big deal to me i've made it a big deal to my kids so i was honored to be asked to participate in this i'm, I'm so glad my favorite was hardy boy books oh, yes. and that actually i didn't really love reading until i started reading those and then i had to read all of them and and ever since then i'm a voracious reader and uh, love it and it changed my life is that one of the reasons you start and you you know, get behind a, a campaign like this because you've got real people who have yeah. real experience it's touched their lives in, in yeah. sue's case her kids yeah you're not just, you know, a written recommendation somewhere? Yeah, it really is. All you have to do is talk to people. And especially so we have people who work for us that are teachers and they can tell us the story of kids who struggle. And you sit and you think, how can we help change their lives and let them have the same accessibility and let them dream past their limits with a book, you know? We, we don't realize it because we get to read and we take it for granted, but it is not something that any of us should take for granted that everyone has access to. We really need to come together. I always say, let's create a wave of literacy. You know, let's give everyone the exact same chance as we've had. My parents read to us. We, I read to my son. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone has that, believe it or not. It's not, like I said, I'm not a luxury. It is really a basic human right. And we really should be obligated as a community to do something about it. But I will tell you something exciting. The Calgary Flames have offered to be a driving force in this. And they're going to match dollar for dollar up to $25,000 to double our impact. So all of us, if we join together and raise money, they will match dollar for dollar. And they've been a strong supporter of our Reading Give It a Shot program and our Books for Kids program. And they just, they get it. And they've stepped up for us yet again this year. So we're really excited about that. That's huge. I, I just think, you know... When it comes to books, it's all about imagination, whether it's an adult book or a kid's book or, a, you know, any kind of novel, even, you know, a history book. It, it creates imagination. It and, does. And I think it that does. is the best gift to give a kid or a person of any age because, yeah. you know, then the sky's the limit. If you yeah. have an imagination, you can be anything. Yeah. You literally can be anything. And it breaks down those barriers. It really does. Like you can, I could quote you stats left, right, and center, but if you even look at, we could increase literacy by 1%, the GDP changes like right. bil- mm. by billions of dollars. People don't realize how important literacy is. It is. If we can break down that barrier and give everyone that chance, like it really does. It changes communities. Truly. It changes society. Families and, for generations yes. to come, right? And yeah. we know as parents, uh, if our kids struggle, I always say the family struggles. When your child struggles, you you struggle. Mm-hmm. Everyone struggles. So if we can help reduce that, how great are we? What a great Christmas gift we could give everybody. 100%. Getting that early jump with Giving (laughs) Tuesday. We're going to direct people, Barb, to TEPF.ca. And, of course, it's the Educational Partnership Foundation. Thanks so much for your time, Barb. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate everything. Barb Simic, President and CEO of the Educational Partnership Foundation.